We are actually at our last subsection of the major subsection of our Lord's death and crucifixion. We're down here at the very bottom, and we'll probably, I will probably stop early tonight. I didn't want to go ahead into the resurrection. I'd like to start that at the beginning of an hour. And so if I get done early, we can just have questions and discussion and enjoy the cookies. So let's pray. Our Father, uh, as we have thought many times, uh, your death for us is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And all that that means, we thank you for this record we've been studying. We thank you for further equipping us to be able to share that with others and to build our own faith. Lord, as as we consider tonight uh, one of the last uh, hostilities expressed uh, towards you, uh, even after you were in the grave, uh, we are reminded of how mankind is in rebellion against you and your authority, and that has been true of each one of us, and yet you, through this death of your Son, have reconciled us. You've made peace between us, Lord, and you, and we thank you so much for that peace and that relationship that we've thrown down our weapons, and uh, you've made us your friends. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so our last subject to study is the day after our Lord's death, which was Friday. On the next day, on Saturday, which would have been the Sabbath day, the Jews request that Jesus' tomb be guarded. And so we will begin this at Matthew, Matthew 27 and verse 5. Not verse 5, Matthew 27 and verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Only Matthew gives us this account. And the next day is the Sabbath, Saturday. Jesus was buried late Friday afternoon. Now, the first thing that surprises us here is that the Pharisees show back up. I, we've been kind of following who, uh, who has shown up at Jesus' trial and his conviction, and his crucifixion. And what we've noticed is the Pharisees are conspicuously absent. And the last time we saw the Pharisees was back in Matthew chapter 23, 
when Jesus was giving all of those woes. He went through seven woes, and he was addressing those to scribes and Pharisees. But from that point forward in the account, none of the synoptics got none of the synoptic gospels um, show any involvement of the Pharisees in Jesus's trial, his multiple trials, in his conviction, in his abuse. The Pharisees are not mentioned, but they show back up here uh, Saturday, the day after. Now, <clears throat> why is that? Uh, probably because they were not they were not the ones specifically that tried Jesus, convicted him, and put him to death. It was predominantly the chief priest and the chief priests were Sadducees. Most of the Sanhedrin and most of the priests were Sadducees. These men were Pharisees, and we know that they were uh, basically kind of antagonists. The Pharisees didn't get along with the Sadducees, and they had significant doctrinal uh, disputes uh, between them. And the Pharisees were not politically involved with running the nation. Uh, but the Sadducees were politically involved with running the nation and interfacing with the Romans. So you can, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but not much. The Pharisees were interested in being holy and following the law. And they weren't interested in all the political uh, gyrations between Israel and Rome. But the Sadducees were. And, of course, the Sadducees are the ones that had the authority and the council to convict Jesus and so forth. But they show up now, and um, I've got to get to the right place in my notes here. So, the chief priests were mostly Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. And so, uh, some conjecture here on my part the Pharisees had listened closely enough to Jesus to not only know that Jesus taught a future resurrection, but that he even said, quote, after three days I will rise. And it's likely the Pharisees went to the chief priest and instigated the priest to go to Pilate. The Pharisees would not have had access to Pilate, but the chief priests would. So they go to Pilate and they say, Sir, we, maybe we Pharisees, that's not in the text, but the Pharisees and the chief priests go to Pilate, and I believe the Pharisees instigated this. Sir, we, sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Now this is pretty amazing because the disciples themselves have completely forgotten that. None of the disciples, they don't understand Jesus' death. They don't think he's going to rise from the dead. But these Pharisees show up and they remember that Jesus said this. So when did the Pharisees hear this? Of course, the gospel records don't give us all the records of what Jesus has said. So it's possible they might have 
heard this in some public discourse. Um, we don't know. Now, we know that Jesus did refer to his rising again to his disciples in private conversation with his disciples, but it's unlikely that these Pharisees would have overheard Jesus' private conversations with his disciples. So how do they know? Where do they, where do they realize he was saying that he, he would rise, rise from the dead? Um, well, a third possibility is, maybe it appears slim, but it's possible, is that they did understand Jesus correctly to be referring to himself three years ago in John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, when he did what? What did he do at the beginning of his public ministry that has to do with uh, rising after three days? Right, James. When he showed up in Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, they asked him, what sign do you do, you know, since you do these things? And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And John interpreted that for us, that what he meant was the temple of his body. And the command to destroy this temple, what Jesus said to the Pharisees, he basically told them, destroy this temple. And what and and Jesus was actually referring to his body. So what had they just done the day before they went into Pilate? They destroyed his temple the day before. The day before they went into Pilate, they destroyed his temple. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they actually did literally what Jesus was alluding to three years earlier. When he said, what sign do you give me? That What sign do you do that you have this authority? He says, well, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Well, that's exactly what they did. They destroyed his body. They crucified him the day before. And he is going to rise. And he answers their question. Right? When they confronted him, what sign do you do that you have the authority to do this? He answered that question because he's going to rise in three days. He did the same thing with the sign of Jonah. Okay? They said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you that we might believe in you. He called them an evil and adulterous generation because of their unbelief. And he says, no sign shall be given you, what? Except the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the sea monster. So both of those predictions, he, 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 he responded to those. They didn't understand them at the time. So it's possible that, it's possible that these Pharisees, they didn't understand it perhaps three years ago when Jesus first said it. But now that Jesus has been put to death and he's in the tomb and they're thinking about this, they perhaps are remembering what Jesus said. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. So maybe that's some conjecture on my part, but um, I, th- I think it's very possible that's, 
the, the, the Pharisees are sensitive to the matter of the resurrection. They believe in a resurrection. And they're going to they're gonna get justification for their belief in the resurrection, aren't they? They believe in the resurrection, but not by Jesus. But the resurrection they believe in as Pharisees is actually on the basis of this man whom they hate. And isn't that sad? That's very sad. The Pharisees were right. They read their Old Testament correctly. There is a resurrection of the righteous. And Jesus is the foundation of that resurrection. And yet they've rejected him. So, so that's possible. So they go in and they ask Pilate, um, Sir, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> as far as Jesus gaining more followers, um, it definitely was much worse once he, for them once he rose from the dead. Um, now the Pharisees and the chief priests, they're afraid that the disciples may try to commit a fraud. And they may have heard that Pilate turned the body of Jesus over to Joseph and Nicodemus. Okay? So they may have realized that Pilate turned the body over, which is very unusual. Usually, especially if you're convicted for insurrection, you're left on the cross for days or weeks for the birds to eat you. And But Pilate turned the body over to Jesus' friends. So now you can just see them thinking, well, they have the body. So perhaps that's what they're thinking. So however, at this time, the disciples are not believing Jesus' words that he will rise again. Their messianic hopes are shattered. They, 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 don't, they don't have any motivation to try to commit a fraud and say Jesus has risen again. They don't understand this. The messianic hopes are in shambles. Not only that, come Sunday, where, where, where do we find them on Sunday? Yeah, locked in the room, right, James. On Sunday, they're not out trying to make a fraud about Jesus' resurrection. They're all locked up in the room for fear of the Jews. They're afraid of the Jews, and so they're, they're not going to try to commit a fraud. They're, they think it's all over uh, at this point, and they're afraid if the Jews are going to come after them. And, and that's why they're in that room with the doors locked and so forth that we see um, on, on the following day, on Sunday. So no, they're not going to commit a fraud. Um, so the Jews asked Pilate to, quote, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. So they desire Pilate to assign a detachment of Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. Pilate said to them, 
you have a guard. You go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. Now, here's our most challenging work for this evening. Whether Pilate's response was to a Roman guard or the temple police is a very difficult question to answer. And personally, I'm, I'm right down the middle. I honestly don't, don't lean one way or the other. It's, it's just a difficult question to answer. But I think it's good for us to study this because it familiarizes us with all the historical details and everything that are going on to study the pros and the cons. So I hope I, I hope I don't deflate any of you because, you know, the popular thing you always hear is this is a Roman guard and these are Roman Green Beret soldiers and that's, that's what's always heard. So sometimes, you know, when we deal with some of these texts and the popular interpretation, you know, is what people like, necessarily sometimes they're not always the best. And this might be the case. The, the, tomb, the tomb was guarded. The temple police, you know, they were no wimps. <laughs> okay, and, and so, uh, you know. Uh, but let's look, at, let's look at the pros and the cons here. The following points favor a Roman guard. First, Pilate's opening words could be translated as an imperative. In other words, it could be translated as, take a guard of soldiers, go make it secure. Now, if that's what he said, then he is giving them a Roman guard. And so there's a translation, translation issue that comes up in this whole matter, and I will, I will show that to you. Uh, <clears throat> let's get, okay, we need to go forward one more verse here. Okay. So, two, two of our Bibles translate it that way. Pilate said, take a guard and take a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. Now, if that is the correct translation, then it is a Roman guard. Okay? That's what he's talking about. And he's commanding them to take a guard of Roman soldiers and make the tomb as secure. And the New English translation and the NIV translate it that way. Take a guard, Pilate answered, go make it, make it as secure. But you'll notice uh, our other English translations don't translate it as an imperative. Take a guard is a command. Go do this. They translate it as an indicative, which is telling, telling them something that already exists. And so this is a translation as an indicative. It isn't a command. He says, you have a guard. Go your way and make it secure as you know how. And what he could be saying there, if this is an indicative, you already have a guard. You have your own police force. Use them and go make it as secure as you desire. Okay. So, um, 
depending on which way you go, you have to defend one translation or the other. Now, obviously, all of these trans translations we're looking at are good translations. So all that is telling you is that grammatically, they can like translate either way without violating the rules of Greek grammar. Um, <clears throat> though there is, I'll mention a preference uh, 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 later. So, so if it is a Roman guard, um, then it's a command. And you can see the NET and the NIV, the N, they, they kind of interpreted it that way. Um, and so they put it in the translation that way. That's probably not fair. You can translate it either way. So they took this as an imperative instead of an indicative. And uh, so number two in support, if it's a Roman guard, uh, the sealing of the tomb refers to a wax seal with Roman insignia. So anyone opening, opening the tomb would be detectable and it would be a violation of Roman authority. The temple police could not have been applying a Roman seal to the tomb. Okay. The temple police are not under the authority of Rome, and if Rome's going to apply a seal to the tomb, it doesn't make any sense that the temple police would apply that seal. Um, so, wouldn't a Roman seal require a Roman guard? Okay. How could a Jewish temple guard be responsible to protect a Roman seal. Okay? So that would be an argument that this is a Roman guard. Okay? See, some of these sound pretty convincing. See, I'm convincing you that it's a Roman guard, okay? But you know I'm going to read the other list. I'm going to convince you the other direction. But I, I think that argument number two carries weight. Third, after the resurrection, the soldiers fled to the chief priest. Well, we haven't got to that. We will when we start studying the resurrection. You know, the soldiers, after the angel uh, rolls away the stone and there's an earthquake and they pass out and they regain their consciousness, the soldiers go off. Uh, they go off to the chief priest and they were bribed to lie and the chief priest said, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. That such protection from Pilate was needed infers that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers who failed their assignment, would be punished, maybe even executed. And so, why would the temple police need to... What, if it was temple police, why would the temple police need protection from Pilate? So the argument goes, it can't be temple police. Why would the temple police have to be protected from Pilate? The temple police don't report to Pilate. They're not under Pilate's authority. Only Roman soldiers would seem to have to be protected from Pilate because Pilate could say, you failed your command, you know, you're executed or you're demoted. So the, that's kind of how the argument goes, and that the soldiers are Roman soldiers, and they're afraid to go back to Pilate, and so they go to the chief priest. And then the chief priest bribe them. See, that's kind of how that argument goes. Um, 
the soldiers are afraid that Pilate is going to execute them or demote them. So they're Roman soldiers. So rather than going back to Pilate, they go, uh, they go to the chief priest. Okay, that's, that's number three. Number four. <clears throat> Could the term soldier be applied to the temple police? And this one, I think, is one of the strongest points in favor that it is a Roman guard because as much as I could study all these references, the temple police are never referred to with this term soldier. And they're distinguished. And I can show you that in Matthew 28, 12. Is that... Yes, thank you, whoever said 2812. My reference is wrong. In in your notes, I have 2814. It really should be 2812. See, here's the term. Uh, When they had assembled, okay, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. So that's where the term is used. And John 18.3, bear with me. Yeah, here you're going to see both terms. This is at the arrest. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops. Okay, a detachment here. That's not our term, soldiers, but that is a Roman detachment. And officers from the chief priests. That's the temple police. So at the arrest, both guards are present. There's a detachment of Roman soldiers, and the reason I'm bringing you to this verse is the temple guards are always referred to with this term, and not the term soldiers. So I won't go through that word study with you here, but if you go through that word study, you will never find the temple guard referred to as soldiers you will find them referred to as officers. It's a different Greek term. So that's point number four, is in favor that the, uh, that the guard was a soldier's, because here, because in Matthew um, 28.14, oh, I know what I did wrong. Yeah, they paid a large sum of money to the soldiers. And that was in verse 12. Yeah, they gave a sum of money to the soldiers. So, the fifth item in favor of a Roman guard is that the temple, the temple police only had authority in the temple precinct, not outside the city. Jesus' tomb was guarded, had to be guarded outside the city. So those are five points in favor of uh, Roman guard. Okay, the following points are in favor of the temple guard. Number one, translating Pilate's opening words in the indicative, indicative, you have a guard, is linguistically somewhat, is linguistically the most natural, okay? 
you have a guard is linguistically the most natural translation, Pilate's answer is actually a refusal to grant their request and telling them they have their own guard, use them. Okay? So, um, most of our English um, translations have followed that course and they've translated it uh, into the indicative, like we have seen uh, right there. You have a guard, go your way. It's like he dismisses them. If we argue this way, he, he's not granting their request. He says, you have a guard, you're dismissed, we're done, go your way. Okay. Which, perhaps it's another argument that it is a temple guard, is because Pilate never liked to give the Jews what they wanted. I don't have that on the list here. But now that the threat is over, they can't threaten them anymore. Jesus has been executed some would say it's unlikely that Pilate would grant their request. Um, number two, sealing the tomb does not refer to putting a Roman seal, but actually making the tomb as secure as you know how. And the term there about sealing the tomb, it can be used as putting a wax seal but it can also be used as making the tomb secure from grave robbers and all that kind of stuff. So, sealing the tomb does not necessarily have to refer to the Roman seal. It can refer to making the tomb more secure against grave robbers or people who want to commit a fraud. Um, and notice the language there, uh, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So he's saying, that's fine. You have a guard and, you know, do whatever you need to do to secure the tomb as good as you can secure it. And so the argument saying that it is a temple guard is saying, the other interpretation is misinterpreting what it means to seal the tomb. Seal the tomb doesn't just mean put a Roman wax symbol about Rome's authority. Sealing the tomb actually means button it down tighter so grave robbers will have more difficulty opening the tomb. Uh, so that's in favor of, uh, of its, a temple, temple police. Uh, so, in other words, the temple guards weren't putting a Roman seal on the tomb. So we don't have that problem that I mentioned with the other, other reasons. Third, it's unlikely that Pilate would place a Roman guard under the command of the chief priest. I, I, you know, would Pilate place a detachment of Roman soldiers he, under these chief priests that he just loved. You know, he just loved those guys. <laughs> so, I mean, that would be an argument that, nah, this, this is not a Roman, Roman guard. Um, so, uh, number, number four, that it's only a possibility that the governor would hear if this comes to the governor's ears. Remember, the chief priests are telling the guards 
if this comes to the governor's ears, if that's only a possibility about the incident, that, indi- that indicates that this can't be a Roman platoon required to report back to the commanding officers. In other words, the chief priests represented like, well, it's, Pilate's not going to find out about this. Well, how can that be when he issues a platoon of soldiers and they have a commander and they're not going to report back? And if they don't report back, Pilate's going to, where, you know, where are these guys? So that, there's some doubt over this that, um, that it's only a possibility that the governor would hear. The argument goes, no, the governor would definitely hear. If these were Roman soldiers, they have to report back. And the governor would definitely find out about it. It's not like something that he might find out about it. So, um, however, the activities of the temple police would seldom be a concern to the governor. Thus, if this comes to the governor, the pilot couldn't care very much about what the temple police were doing. So that, yeah. Number five, it's hard to believe the soldiers could be bribed to say that they were asleep knowing such admission could lead to their severe punishment or execution and they would be dishonoring themselves you know, you, you think these Roman soldiers are going to, sure, give me some money and I'll tell people I'm, I was sleeping at my post. <laughs> That's a stretch, I think, that, the, that these Roman soldiers, now it does say they gave them a large sum of money, <laughs> okay? But I mean, they would basically have to be throwing in the trash all their honor as a soldier, correct? Yeah, if, if anybody asks you, yeah, tell them, well, we fell asleep while they stole the body. So they would have to be trashing their honor as military men, as, as a soldier. So, so those are the pros and the cons. Um, if it is the temple police, then in Matthew twenty-eight fourteen, the term soldier is applied to the temple police. So I honestly I'm I'm pulled in e- either direction, but I've also done this just to kind of lead you through the nitty-gritty work of an exercise, you know, of dealing with scripture. Um, but um, what the scribes and the Pharisees accomplished, of, co- of course, the, the not the scribes, the the Pharisees and the chief priests, what they accomplished, of course, was giving us more and more, more evidence for Jesus' resurrection <laughs> by what they did. Whatever guard it was, it's just strengthened the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ, that the disciples did not steal the body. They could never have stolen the body because they weren't thinking about it in the first place. And, he, and even if they wanted to steal the body, they could never have overcome the temple police who were guarding the tomb. So the, the enemies are made to praise God uh, 
once again. And we'll see that when we, Lord willing, next week uh, we'll start on the resurrection. So, uh, Matthew, let's give you this microphone. And uh, we're going to finish up a little bit early. But your questions are very welcome in discussion and additions. If I understood you correctly in your opening statement, uh, the Sadducees were a part of the political game and the Pharisees were not? Yes. How did you come to that conclusion? Because I would have thought personally both were involved. No, we know that from Josephus and extra-biblical documents about Israel in the first century. Yeah. And if you read uh, the intertestamental li- literature, like Maccabees and all of that, it's the, it's the, it's the, Sadduce- it's the Sadducean party that is political with, with the Romans. Okay. Now, I want to make sure I communicate. I, I understand political arena, but I mean, both of their pockets ran deep, and I'm thinking the, the Vatican. So when I say in the political arena, I don't mean like who to vote for and stuff or however they did it. I just meant... The Pharisees, both, I had always thought, because of their deep pockets, they would bribe, do whatever necessary to get the, who they wanted. That's the, the Sadducees, point I was The Sadducees had deep pockets. They often were very wealthy. But that's not the case with the Pharisees. Okay, I didn't know that. The, if, but the Sadducees, what you're saying is true, Matthew. They were aristocrats. And they were wealthy. And they liked the status quo with Rome. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to throw Rome off, not at all. They, they liked, they had positions of political power, they were wealthy, and uh, yeah. And they were often chief priests. And now they, the Pharisees hated the Romans because the Romans appointed the high priest. I mean, I, I, I can imagine that would offend them. <laughs> You have the Gentile occupying authority is appointing the highest religious office in Israel. And, and the Pharisees and the Zealots, they hated that. But you see, it had become a political office. And, and so that was one of the reasons that, that those that wanted to follow the law wanted to the law said how the high priest was to be appointed, not by from Gentile ruler. <laughs> so, yeah. What else? Other comments or questions about the whole thing here as far as Christ's death? You know, I think we've been seven or eight weeks on it and go, going through. So. Anybody? Heidi wants to get out of here early tonight, right? Was it you that said you had a lot to do? Somebody said you had a lot to do. Who was that? Oh, it, oh, Alexis wants to get out, out of here early. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't remember something for 45 minutes. All right. Nobody? Well, Lord willing, uh, we get to study the, the second most, an equally most glorious event in all the history of humanity. We're studying the two most glorious events in the history of our human race. The, the, the death of, of our, our, the Son of God on our behalf and his resurrection three days later. Oh, I will say one other thing that I never brought up. And Fred Grafe was needling me to bring this up, and he's not here tonight. But uh, there are some that say 
Jesus died not on the Friday, but on Thursday. Okay? And the reason they say that is they're trying to solve a problem. Well, there's two problems they're trying to solve. One of them, I don't think that is the solution is necessary. One of them, that I will be three days and three nights. Well, if Jesus was put in the tomb on Friday sunset and he rose Sunday morning, how many days is that? By our time reckoning, that's two days. But in a Jewish time reckoning, if you step one hour into the other day, it's like a whole day. So often that's the answer that's given. It doesn't mean literally three 24-hour periods. If you, if you go into either day, that day counts. But the text that's a bit more difficult is when Jesus said, as Jonah, what did Jesus say about Jonah? As Jonah was in the belly three days and three nights. So and what? The, and, and how many nights? Uh, three days and three nights. So shall the Son of Man. Okay, so how many nights was Jesus in the tomb? Three. We've got to say three. How many nights? What did Jesus say? He said three nights. How many nights was he in the tomb? Two. Two nights. If he was put in the tomb Friday night, he was in the tomb Friday night and Saturday night. So that, We just say we believe it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that's, that's, the, that's, that's the tension. Now, I, I think the traditional approach is correct. And the reason I do is I haven't read the defense of the other approach very much. I've thought about it some. But I think in order for Jesus to have died on um, a Thursday, the Passover meal would have had to have been on Wednesday. And unless we have the Jewish calendar wrong, it wasn't on Wednesday. So that's why I think it doesn't work. is because you have to move the Passover. Jesus celebrated the Passover the evening of his arrest. Okay, so he has to get arrested on Wednesday night and crucified on Thursday and be in the tomb on Thursday night to be Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night in the tomb. But if that's the case, we've got to shift the Passover back one day. And everything I can tell, we would have to have the Jewish dates of the week or whatever on the Passover wrong, I think, for that to work. So, all right. And Fred's not here, but I can tell him I, I, I did not leave you ignorant of, of that particular text about three nights in the tomb and that discussion. All right. Um, I seem to remember... Uh, now, are you Braden? Yes. You're Braden. I got that. Okay, Braden. <laughs> I seem to remember the Mary Magdalene and the other woman uh, wanting to go on a Saturday, but that was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. That comes into this discussion, and those that are promoting this uh, Wednesday Passover say there were two Sabbaths. 
that they observed. And there was the normal seven-day Sabbath, and there was a there were also additional Sabbaths on special high days, yeah. and they propound the argument that there were actually two Sabbaths. Okay, yeah, because if they if he did die on Thursday, then they could have just prepared the body on uh, Friday traditionally, but or yeah, that that's that that comes into the discussion, and that theory says there's actually two Sabbaths taking place here. Okay, cool. Good question. Good. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, uh, once again, uh, we thank you for your works. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us more opportunities to make your gospel known. And we pray for our families and our children that early you would call them to yourself. And, Father, that you'd help us as a church not be ashamed of your gospel and uh, be prepared to defend uh, your resurrection and to be witnesses because we're standing on the shoulders of these first century witnesses. Lord, our our mind goes to ask your mercy for Bill Carson once again, as, as he's back in, in rehab, Lord, and asking your mercy for Frida, uh, that you would strengthen her and that you would heal this wound uh, that she has, Lord, on her nose. Lord, and we don't, we don't know the status yet of little Jacob Griffith, this little boy. Oh, Lord, uh, have mercy on him. Father, we praise you for fellowship that you've made us uh, brothers and sisters, Lord. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.